All right, so like I said, new series, Love Walked Among Us. Here's the simple idea. God is love, Jesus is God, Jesus is love, Jesus came here, lived, walked, breathed, and interacted with us. And so when we look at the Gospels, when you open up the stories, when you begin to read, well, this is what Jesus did, what you're literally seeing is love embodied in the way that he interacted and lived life on this earth. So the idea, love walked among us, is this beautiful vision. Just for us to just even stop for a moment and think that as he walked around, what people saw was love embodied, walking and breathing, interacting with them. Now, this title is actually based off a book by the author Paul Miller, who has been heavily influential uh, in the life of our church, heavily engaged in some of the stuff we do in discipleship and mentorship programs, Uh, wrote a book called The Praying Life, uh, which has been heavily influential in our prayer lives here at the church as well. Now, in concert with him, we've been doing a lot of different things over the last couple years to develop and to disciple our staffs, uh, our elderships, and different leaders within the church in just seeing Jesus more clear. Because what we just prayed about, like I think a lot of us, we know a lot of things about Jesus. So now some of you here, and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I know nothing about Jesus, or I know some sound bites about Jesus, and that's great. So maybe you would fall in the category of, I don't know that much about him, and that's great too, because you're going to learn a ton here. But for a lot of us Christians, I think we mentally ascend to a, no, I know a lot about Jesus. But the language we often use is like, I know Jesus. And that's a different thing, Right? Like even when, when my wife and I began to date, I knew a lot about Verity from a distance because friends had told me things about her, right? They had said, oh, she's, you know, she's from South Africa and she loves Jesus. She's very creative. She's all of these amazing things. But it wasn't until we actually spent time together. And listen, we're eight years into our marriage and I still don't know her the way that I should. Like a, that's still like a growth pattern that hopefully by the day we die, we hit 60th uh, year anniversary, uh, God willing, that I will know her better than I know her now. It's this process. And so I think in a relationship with Jesus, a lot of us would say that we know a lot about the guy. The point of Love Walked Among Us in this series of the next 15 weeks is to see, do we actually know him, though? Like, do you guys know Jesus? Do we know who he is? Do we know his heart? Do we know like what, what, like what he contended for, what he wrestled with? What was the motivation behind all the stories that we know about him? What was going on in the garden, right? As he sweat blood, what was going on as he did this miracle and that miracle? As love walked among the world, what does that mean? Do we actually know Jesus? And I would say this, I think this has the opportunity to truly be the most formative series we've ever done in the six years of this church. To gaze and stare at our Savior and say, Lord, I want to know you better. Because I truly believe that in deeper knowledge and understanding of Jesus, like just knowing him, that transforms all of life. Now, there was this interview that happened back in, oh man, I can't remember the day, but like kind of mid-20th century, and they're interviewing Einstein Albert Einstein, if you guys are unfamiliar, okay? Uh, just kind of a brilliant guy. All the other Einstein, there's like a baby Einstein, not that person, okay? So um, Albert Einstein was being interviewed about Christianity, uh, and he was asked a few questions. The first question was, was, to what extent are you influenced by Christianity? And he said, as a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene, Jesus. 
He said, have you read Emil Ludwig's book on Jesus? Now, if you're not familiar, Emil Ludwig wrote a, a biography about the life of Jesus. And at that time, it was kind of thought of as kind of the biography of Jesus. If you wanted to know about the guy, you read that book. And he said this, Emil Ludwig's Jesus is shallow. Again, this was what everyone was like, man, if you want to know Jesus, read this book. He says, Emil Ludwig's Jesus is shallow. Jesus is far too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can simply dispose of Christianity with just a witty remark. The last question, you accept then the historical account of Jesus? And he said, unquestionably, no man or woman can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. In other words, if this were not true we wouldn't get the experience we get, or he wouldn't get the experience he got when he read the Gospels. That there was something so true and real about this person that lived. Now, he didn't think of him as Messiah, but he saw him for who he was. This majestic and this unbelievable man that was worth every type of study and looking to and peering at and saying, what could this possibly mean? And so we're going to take some of that wisdom and say, no, we're going to stare and gaze at Jesus throughout the Gospels over the next 15 weeks, trusting that as we do that, the Spirit allows us to continue to know him more, to fall deeper in love with him, and then change our lives as a result. Now, it's not just about falling in love with him, but then it's about then seeing an example that then we are to go then and live as well. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2 say, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, multiple times throughout the Gospels, come and follow me. Right? He entreats people, follow me. In other words, be with me. Let us be in communion with one another. May we know each other as we engage in this mission that we walk forth and on to. So if the call then for the church is if you're here and you're a Christian, your call very simply is to be like God, and God is love. And so as we study these things, as we get to know Jesus, then the next step would be the byproduct of our lives would be love would overflow from the church and from people. And so again, I think this series is going to help us. Now, um, last couple things on this. Uh, we're going to have a lot of different voices come up and speak. Uh, I think about... Half of the series will be preached by someone, not me. Anthony's going a couple times. We're bringing people from in and around our states. We're bringing in a guy uh, who actually helped write part of this book, okay, uh, to come and help teach. We're going to do a panel. Uh, the idea being we all have different relationships with Jesus, so let's hear from different people how they see Jesus in these different stories, okay? And so you're going to hear a lot of different voices. Um, we're going to teach the sermons in some different ways, so it won't be like today, like what we're going to do today won't be like every week, but today's going to be very dialogical. In other words, I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to answer, okay? Like, like that means, ready, when I ask a question, your mouth opens and words pour forth that are in the general realm of an answer to the question I asked, and that's key, okay? Don't just stand up and talk about the football game this afternoon, okay? Although, go Saints, okay? Okay. Um, so, so we're going we're gonna to go back and forth because the idea is we want us to discover Jesus in these texts and read them afresh. And sometimes it's just you just keep hearing me talk, right? 
And that stuff can be like, ah, yeah, okay, I know that we want you guys to discover with us. And I'm going to be honest, even like I, I can tend to over prep sometimes with different sermons and like I really get, and I kind of under prepped intentionally so that we kind of walk and, and discover uh, this together, right? Um, some of you are like, no, you didn't. You were just lazy this week. It's like, no, like I truly, I, I want to, to kind of step in and discover this with our family as we walk through that. And so there's going to be some different ways we teach. And so my ass of the church, not just today, but truly over the next 15 weeks as we, as we dive into this every Sunday, will be these three things, that you guys would first immerse yourself in the text. Immerse yourself in the moment. Immerse yourself in this place as we as a family try and learn more about our Savior. Like, really step in. Like, we're going to try and craft imagery for you guys. The scene today, like, to put you at the city walls as the scene's unfolding before us type of stuff. So I'm going to ask you to really intentionally immerse yourself in the story and in the moment. The second thing I'm going to ask you to do is to then respond, right? So use your voice, body language, engage, allow your emotions to go, especially you fellas that think you don't have them. You do actually let your body, let your mind, let everything respond to what we're learning. And the last one is to apply, and this is absolutely necessary. Because if we just come, we just treat this as like, well, that was a cool 40 minutes. Uh, I'm glad we got to learn a couple things about Jesus, but we don't actually put anything that God is stirring on our hearts that the Spirit's trying to do. We don't apply anything. I tell you, it will fall away. You will lose it, and we will not be changed. Paul Miller, author of the book, again, he has this quote. It's the last thing I'll say before we jump into today's first story, the first story that we're going to go through. He says this, the person of Jesus is low, slow, and hidden, like the seeds in Jesus' kingdom parables. The person of Jesus only comes alive. Hear me. The person of Jesus only comes alive as you love. He will remain completely opaque, which means you can see through him, okay, to you unless you begin foot washing. It is a knowledge that only comes from walking in his shoes as you enter the same downward path of his life. You will not get this knowledge by having me explain it to you. You enter into it by entering it. Okay? That we want to know the depths of the love of Jesus. We want to know what it meant that love was embodied in Christ and he is your and my Savior and that of the entire world. We want to know and experience and know him. Man, we need to live this and see it fleshed out. Amen? So that's the drive. Okay, here's the deal. Luke chapter 7 is our first story. And I'm going to ask you, if you don't have a Bible Please raise your hand today, or if you're not, or use your phone, get on the scriptures, because some of the questions are going to cause you to have to go, oh, okay, this is what I'm seeing right now. I need you to be able to look at the scriptures, because we only get one verse on the screen at time. It's not going to be enough, uh, and so if you don't have a Bible, or you're not using your phone, or something like that, um, steal someone's phone, and or get a Bible from one of our uh, interns up here, okay? And turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, it is the third book of the New Testament. Okay, so kind of last fourth of your Bible. Look for like the third book, L-U-K-E, Luke. Turn to chapter 7. Look, hey, if people in here are French, you do L-U-C. I didn't want any confusion, okay? Um, here we go. Luke 7, starting in verse 11 to 17. You heard it read before. This is the story of the widow at Nain and the raising of her son. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out and the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, now we have this funeral that's going on. It's, it's this kind of first century Jewish funeral. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, here's our first dialogical question. Again, there's no wrong answers. Just say what you think, okay? So the first question is real simple. When we start thinking through funerals in modern-day America, and maybe you've been to one, and I do also I want to be, uh, I want to care for you in this sense. Like if you've been to one recently and there's pain in that, I fully understand that, okay? And, and so the, Anything that's shared and said, please don't hear it as we're just trying to like kind of step into the moment of a modern day funeral. Um, and I realize there might be some pain attached with that. And so, man, we're with you. Uh, we lament with you. And we'd love to be with you if, if that is fresh and new and part of that story. So um, that being said, so just again, what do we got? When you think of a funeral today or if you've been to a funeral, what do you see? What does it generally look like? What happens there? Go ahead. Morning. There's mourning, right? There's mourning at a funeral. What else? Quiet, yeah, quiet's really good, but celebration, right? So there's a remembrance, a celebration piece. What else? Sharing of stories, right? So that different people potentially will come forward, tell of what's going on, okay? Remembering the best, yeah. There's a reflection, right? Like the, there, was, there was like really looking through and like, man, like even some of the negative stuff begins to fall away a bit as you think through this person. What else? There's a procession, right? So there's kind of an entrance. There's people that will come. You see that if it's right on the way to the funeral, you'll see that driving, things like that. What about, what are people generally wearing? Everyone's wearing black, right? Like everyone's, okay, it's, it's morning, it's black, it's quiet, somebody already said. Anything else that stands out to you guys? Food, okay. There's usually some, usually after, like that would be like the reception. Usually you're, you're eating and stuff like that. I don't know if that's most common practice during the funeral, uh, but like afterwards, right, there's, again, part of that celebration, part of that remembrance, gathering of people, telling of stories, okay? So, so that, that's, that is, that's somewhat of a modern-day funeral, that you have these visions of what that looks like. So what we have here is a first-century Jewish funeral, and it was very specific, okay? And so let me just describe the scene a bit to you a bit, okay? Actually, let me read the text to you, and then we'll go through it again. Ready? Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. His disciples and great crowd went with him, and as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Jesus has just traveled 22 miles. Okay, so here's the city of Nain, of Nain right? He was in Capernaum, which was in the northeast of Nain, by 22 miles. Him and this crowd have made this 22-mile trek to Nain, probably arriving in town around 6 p.m., probably arriving around dusk, around kind of magic hour for you Instagram people, right? So he comes in, um, and he's approaching the eastern gate of the city of Nain, okay? And so you, you begin to honestly think through this, like just, again, let us set ourselves in the moment that if you were, let's, I'm going to position you at the city gate. You're going to be at the city wall. The gate is open. You stand there. You look out to, let me do it for you guys. You look out to the east and you see a crowd descending upon this city with Jesus in front, the sun setting in the west. So peering down, a sun uh, kind of setting, coming down, glaring upon the light of the world. Right? This is the vision of what's approaching the city of Nain. Now there's two separate things going on. So we have Jesus and his crowd. And here's what his crowd would have been doing. Again, walking 22 miles, probably a bit tired. But the great crowd that it speaks of there in the text is probably somewhere around three to 5,000 people large. Okay. 
So there is a huge amount of people descending on a city with a population of about 500. Okay? So you have three to 5,000 people coming down from the northeast, okay? and they're following, and then behind, right in front of them would have been the disciples. right? So there would have been the 12 or the closest followers of Jesus, and leading them would have been Christ, leading them into the city. And so you have this vision of the descending people now just inside the city gate. So that's what, you, when you look this way, you see that. When you look that way, you see this funeral procession. Now, now, just the contrast of this. So this group, now, if you were in a first century Jewish funeral procession, it was somewhat expected that you guys, that everybody went, okay? That if you were part of this city, you were part of that village, you were part of that family. Listen, it took a whole village for life to exist. There was trade and there was barter and you served each other. And you had to live together to exist in an agrarian community like these cities were. And so Nain would have had three, or, or sorry, about 500 people and most people were expected to show up. So we're thinking about a crowd of about three to 500 were bringing up the tail end of this funeral procession. Now just in front of them would be the professionals. Okay. Now, in every first century Jewish funeral, there would be professionals that were hired. No matter what your income was, you had to hire professionals for your funeral. And that's a flute player and mourner. So you had to, the minimum you could have was one flute player and two mourners. Now, flute players we get, it's a person who plays the flute, right? So they're walking, it's, I think it's like this, they're playing the flute, right? Then you have people who are professionally paid to wail and to mourn. Right? And, and, and it was, I mean, like screaming, right? It, it was calling the people around them to lament. Like, this has happened, lament for there is sin and brokenness in the world. And so they would be screaming at the top of their lungs, wailing, even though, listen, they probably weren't related to the family, but they were professionally paid to do this, to denote the brokenness of the situation. So you're standing at the gate, you hear all of the sound coming from a horde of 5,000, and in this other ear, you hear wailing women screaming. I had an opportunity to see a funeral like this actually in West Africa where they have a very similar tradition. And it was these, there was a, a, a per, almost a chorus of like eight wailing women that led this processional in just screaming at the top of their lungs. And it is deafening and it is weighty. And so you have these two things going on, okay? Just in front of the professionals would have been the casket those carrying, right, the bearers of the buyer. A buyer is essentially is the, uh, like the, the thing that transports a casket, okay? So it's often on wheels, especially back then. It would have been somewhat primitive, but you push that along. And so the buyer was being pushed by these bearers, and then you would have had the mom just in front with the closest family members walking as well. So what we have is this crowd... We have the professionals. We have this, this deceased son of which we know he is the only son of this widow. We know she's a widow, right? Because uh, well, the text says we know she is without a husband now and without her son. We're going to talk about more of that in just a moment. Walking in the front of her family. And they are converging on the eastern gate of the city of Nain. Okay? So here's where we're at. Let's keep going. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding 
country. Okay, um, we're beginning to see a glimmer of, of, because of the way we're talking about it, right? We're beginning to see a glimmer of what's shaping out what this story is about. And I'll, and I'll just give you kind of this thought. Like at the beginning of this, the first time, and every time I've read through this, even the highlighted line in your Bible probably is, Jesus raises a widow's son. Is that what most of you have probably in your text? The highlighted line, Jesus raises a widow's son. So what often gets then hyped as the main idea here is the miracle, Right? Because that's crazy, right? That's not something we see every day, um, that someone is raised from the dead. And so it does have its due in giving it right glory, if you will. But what do you think is really going on in this story? If we're thinking through the lens of love, if we're thinking through the lens of our Savior and trying to gaze at him, what then is reframed as what this story is really about? Anyone guess? Just throw some stuff out there. The mother. Good. Jesus caring for the widow. Passion, compassion for the widow, right? So, so we, begin, we slow down on the text a little bit. Because when you read through it, you're like, dang, dude, that's a sweet miracle. But then when you begin to slow down, like, we study the life of our Savior. To say, let's say, like, Look at what he does here, the love that is expressed and shown to this woman. So next question, how does he love her? And it's all in the text there. So you can look down, uh, and I got like five ways that you can kind of go in there. So ways that he loved this woman, this widow. Go ahead. The son, right, so the son is, is, has died, okay? And so now with him out of the picture... She's probably fearful, right? And we'll get to more of that in just a moment. What are some tangible ways in the text, right? That he, and it's obvious. Like, don't, don't get caught up. Don't try and go too deep here. But just what are ways that he loves her? Consoles her. Good, yeah. So he brings comfort, right? What else? Compassion, good. He saw her. Who said that? Nice, Gretchen, awesome. So he sees her, right? Which is, well, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Okay, so he sees her. He has compassion. He comforts her. What else? There's one really obvious one. Yeah, right. she, he raises a son like that. Good job, right? Like that, thanks. That's really showing love when you take my son who has passed and bring them back to life. Like that, thank you, okay? So he shows love. And there's a last one. And this one's a little bit more difficult and tricky to see, but, but, but you can see if you can pick it out. Comes right after the kid is raised. Gives the son back to her. And we're going to talk more about what that means in just, in just a moment, why that's such a profound moment. Okay, so, so he loves her tangibly in this one. Do you see that? So this story is primarily about Jesus' love and engagement with this widow who's just lost everything. So let's break down his interactions with her a little bit. Okay, so um, he sees her. I, I love that you brought that up because, listen, that's the first thing we get. When Jesus saw her, then all of this stuff happened, right? So we would say, man, at, at the heart level of the movement of love, the trajectory of love begins with seeing, begins with having eyes to look at and to acknowledge and to begin to peer into and see people made in the image of God. Like that's, that's the beginning trajectory of love. Okay, so um, let's talk about this season. So um, when you think of, um, how do we do this? Okay, um, when you, if you were there, okay, so again, we're there, right? We're, we're at the city gate. Um, 
where do you think, as if you were Jesus, so now put, your, put your, uh, yourself in Jesus' sandals, um, and you arrive to the gate, and you see all this coming, what are things that would catch your attention, catch your eye? The flute player, right? Because that's just, like, what is he doing, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's just not often something that you would see. Now, maybe back then it would have been a little bit more normal. You knew that was part of this, so it would have denoted some things. But still, there's a long, shiny pipe that's just doodling around in the back, okay? So the flute player, what else? Mourners, right? There's these women screaming at the top of their lungs, calling for lament and repentance amongst everyone who's listening, so your eyes could have been drawn to them, right? Anything else? The crowd. The crowd. There's 500 people moving towards. And listen, these cities were not massive. And so there was this long processional of people. So there were lots of things to take up the eyes of the people. Certainly the casket would have been all of these things. And so Jesus, I think, I don't know if he started right at the woman, but eventually he sees all these things. But then all of his attention is focused on one thing, the woman. So all these other things he could have looked at, other things he could have ministered to, cared for, thought about. He could have, t- listen, he could have turned around. He could have talked to his crowd and say, hey, let me tell you what's going on. He could have given context. He could have began to draw attention to himself. I'm going ahead of myself right now. Like, there were all sorts of things he could have done. But no, he then looks, 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 bam, and sees this woman. And then action follows. Hear, hear me, guys. If we want to step into the love, if we want to know Jesus, we need to know he is love and that the beginning of love is sight. It's being able to see each other for who God has made us. And can I get an amen that maybe that could be helpful in our current state right now? That we would actually begin to see people for who they are. There was a, a situation just a couple days ago. Um, I'm sitting before this person, and they're crying. And they're crying, sharing some things. That, to be honest, like I, I, I had a, a disagreement with some of the stuff that they were saying. And I tell you, I, my initial flinch was defensiveness. Was like, no, that's not right. I didn't do that, right? And then, like, the amazing gift that the Spirit is was like, you moron. <laughs> like it was almost audible in Arabic. No, it's um, <laughs> Aramaic is what I meant for. But um, He's like, what are you doing? Like, that's, how do you love this woman? You are not seeing her right now. You're seeing yourself. I was seeing her through the lens of me, I was not seeing her through the lens of my Savior. Lord, give me your eyes. And all of a sudden, I, I felt this, this like churning in my heart to say, no, no, no. See her, hear her, engage, then begin to formulate stuff. The application of this is widespread, friends. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands, husbands, or fathers, kids, kids to parents, friends, roommates, coworkers, etc. See people. When you're on Facebook, See people, okay? When someone brings up something you disagree with, see them. Open your eyes, okay? That the beginning trajectory of love is seeing. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing he does, the first way he shows love. What's the next way? He shows compassion. 
So he sees this woman, and things begin to happen in here, right? Like, because he's, like, we are emotional beings. Now, hear me. We were made in the image of God. Jesus is God. Jesus had emotion. So do you. If you think you don't, that's because you've been, like, trained to think you don't. Or you just think there's only certain emotions that count. Like, even, like, when we say, oh, you're being emotional, that means that you're being sad and negative, but anger is an emotion, frustration is emotion, etc. Like you have feelings, and so when we see, when Jesus sees, he begins to have compassion upon this woman. Now, um, the obvious question then is, what does compassion look like? Let's let's put ourselves in the scene, and, and the way I want to talk about this is the way that Paul Miller even helped us think through this is, well, let's let's go on the opposite. And if we'd say maybe the opposite of compassion would be anger and frustration. What, 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 what physically happens to us when we get angry? Like, I want you to maybe just think of the last fight you had with your spouse, okay? Or the last fight you had with your roommate. I know none of you do that, but just think what you saw in a movie once, okay? So um, what does it look like when someone's angry? What, what are some telltale signs? Facial expressions, right? So usually, like, the lips start getting pretty tense, there's some eyebrows that are making some stuff. Eyes are doing this in a nonstop rotation. Okay, what else? Volume, right? Your voice begins to project. It even says that like your, your voice, depending on levels of anger, will change its pitch. Okay, like you'll it's not just you get louder, your pitch changes. You're like, what? You know what I mean? Like you just get so angry. You're just, what? You know, like you just, you know. And so like your pitch changes. There's things that happen. What else with anger? What? what? Gum? Tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was like, gum. Was... So your tone, your tone, your tone changes. Like there's this switch, right? It's, it's probably not tender. It, there's, there's, there's some angst to it. There's some rigidity to it. And, and here's the thing. Like it's funny because even as I say this, I know Verity's thinking like, but you deny all these things when I tell you, you know, because we'll get in a fight. I'm like, I'm not doing that. She's like, I saw you. Like, of course you were doing that. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I don't. Um, so, um, okay, your, fa- let me excuse me. your face turns red, okay? Your eyes tend to sneer or sear, sorry, right? Your, your body gets tense. There's often clenched fists, okay? Your blood pressure begins to rise. Like, all of these things, telltale signs. This is anger. So, okay, what does compassion look like? In other words, if you were standing there, maybe, maybe you walked in with Jesus, maybe you're one of the disciples. Now, Luke is giving us this account because someone shared, hey, in that moment, Jesus saw the woman and felt compassion. Okay, how did they know that? What, what was happening on the countenance, in the body, in the breathing of our Savior as he looks upon this woman? Tears, Tears right? That, 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 that maybe there's, there's stuff beginning to happen in here. The eyes begin to glaze over a bit. What else? Oh, just body language. What, what would be some of those things, the body language stuff? Right, okay, so there's actually, there's this physical touching piece, right? So they reach out. You think about this, like in some ways when someone's angry, they clench fists thinking I'm going to hit or something. You get defensive, you get fight, right, or flight. And so maybe, but no, in compassion, it's like, no, my hand is reached out to love. Okay, not clenched, but open. What else? Yeah. Soften, stop, right? So there's, he takes, he's like, all right, hey, there's, again, there's all this stuff going on. And he stops, he 
sees. He, he probably sets himself in a position, right, of, of, of looking, right, of compassion, softens his voice, softens probably his stance. Like there's probably, you know, it's it, like he was on a mission to get to Nain, and then he sees this. Compassion comes upon him. You just imagine his body, like he's coming in the city, and he sees this, and probably his walk slows down. And tears begin to come. The mouth begins to loosen. The jaw loosens. The body loosens. His speech softens. He probably, I would guess, right? Like I know when, when I'm feeling things that I don't like feeling, I, I tend to like look around to see like, are you guys feeling this too? Like is there, like as you look around and people are seeing his face and this is, this is Jesus. Now, again, we, we, can, we can detach ourselves from this person, but this is our savior, guys, Right? saw this woman in grief and what overwhelmed him upon his sight was compassion. The second step towards love is a compassionate response. The trajectory of love is sight and compassion. Could we not potentially use some of that right now? Lord Jesus, help us. Would my heart sink, again, what Palmer said, that downward trajectory of love, which means I die so that others may be raised up. That's what love is. Okay, so, um, so that's, that's compassion. Okay. Um, we've already kind of said this, but um, why do you think he's, he has such compassion upon this woman? And, and, and Taylor actually already alluded to one of the answers, and so I'll just repeat one of the things she said was, I mean, she, she lost her son, which that, right, grievous, you lost your son. But then she also lost all security for her life. You understand that? Like, so she, she lost all security because, man, her husband has passed. She no longer has that. Her Now her son, who would be expected to care for her as a widow, is now gone as well. So there is a loss of security. Are there any other things that could be moving Jesus to compassion as he saw her? She's alone. Right? And that's just the perfect way to put it. So it's not just she's without a husband and she's without, it's what is she? She is alone by herself. And he sees that and his heart is moved to compassion. You think of what's going on in her mind. How could this happen? Now, in 21st century, as we think through calamity and brokenness and terrible things, we often say, like, and God, why would you do this? Right? Which, hear me, that's, I get that. I've asked those questions multiple times in my life. Um, in the first century, for, for a woman, okay, for, honestly, for all of the population during that time, especially in Galilee, in this region, as a Jew, it would have been more, what have I done wrong? She, she would have thought it was something that she had done that had brought this upon them. And so you just imagine this woman already grieving the loss, but then grieving that it was her fault. The guilt of walking through this city, having people wail and proclaim lament that she puts on herself. And the pain and the hurt and the brokenness associated with that false reality. And here comes God. Hear that? Like, and here comes God. Because who does she feel guilty for? She feels guilty before Yahweh, before the God of the Bible, the God of the Torah. And here he comes and enters into the gate. What, what amazing, sovereign goodness of God. 
Okay, let's keep going. Um, he comes in then and he, uh, he comforts her. Okay, the third part. We're actually going to, um, I'm going to take these last three things he does and we're going to put them all on the he helps, right? So the, the third part of the trajectory of love is, is to help. So it starts, you see, okay, you respond in emotion, compassion, downward trajectory of love, and then you help. Then you act. I'm going to be honest. I am a act first type of person. I am a, if any, anyone who's hurting, they're like, hey, all of this is going on. Great. Let's get to work, right? Like, okay, you need this. Let me position this over here. I'm going to get on the phone. We're going to ring that. And all of these things, now I'm going to fix your life, okay? <laughs> and I expect then that the end product is a whole person. No, 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 no. That's false. And if any of you, any other of you have the tendency to do that also, that's a problem. That action must follow truly seeing people. And action must follow compassion. Then we can decide what we do next, okay? Cannot be out of order. Otherwise, listen, it's just a mess, and it's not the way our Savior loved. So in the first part of He Helps, He Comforts, Okay. Um, tell me, I'm going to run through this. We're a little short on time, so I'm going to move a little bit quicker. But um, he tells her not to cry, which is kind of an interesting thing. And like, honestly, it's not a great thing to say to people um, when they're mourning, right? So this one, I was like, all right, Jesus, like, I don't, was that the best route? Because <laughs> here's what Jesus does. And, and I, somebody already said, it. he walks up and he touches the buyer. He, he stops the buyer and he comforts this woman. And in his comfort, he says, do not cry. Now, why, oh, why could Jesus, our Savior, say that? Because he knew. He knew what he was about to do. He had a vision for something grander and greater that was to come. He could see the way things were moving. And so he could step in intentionally. And so let's not see this as like he didn't understand what she needed to hear. He knew, and so he comes and says, Woman, don't, don't cry. I'm about to do something. Like, and and hear, hear me. A lot of people in the crowd, they probably knew who Jesus was. Not, not just, hear me, not just as this like, figure and this prophet that's going around healing people all through Israel. Right? They, they would have thought of like, Jesus, the guy who grew up in Nazareth three, or 10 miles away. Okay? Like just, and so their cities probably engaged with one another. Like people probably saw Jesus when he was just a little guy running around causing trouble in Joseph's shop. And they're like, now he's come and he steps to the buyer. And there's just this authority that comes along with the hand of the Savior stopping the processional in such a timid and quiet way. Notice, he doesn't yell stop. He doesn't come in and say, I'm going to do something. He comes in and he touches and he touches the woman and says, comfort that comes with that. The next is the obvious one. Uh, he raises the sun. Now, we don't probably need to spend too much time on why this is such a gift. To have a, a person that you've lost be returned to you, especially in that moment. Like, can you, again, like, think through the woman's lens of the pain and the hurt and to say, no, 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 woman, and was raised. So, so we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but just, just would you just for a second just think like, wow, what an amazing gift for the Savior to step into that moment and do such a thing. 
Um, and, and I love, too, just the understated nature of it. Because when we do great things, we often feel like we need people to see them. Like we feel like, hey, did you guys, or if they don't see them, you find a way to work it into conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, oh, what'd you do this week? Ah, oh, you know, just, just went to work. Let it do, you know, raise the guy from the dead. Um, like, like you, you te- we try and make much of ourselves. No, this is the savior of the world who's about to, ra- or who does raise someone from the dead, and he does it in the most calm and compassionate way. Not drawing attention to himself and not draw- even drawing attention to the miracle. We'll talk about why more as we land here in just a bit. So the procession has stopped. What does he do next? He speaks. He raises his son from the dead. Um, and, and hear me. Let me just give you this little nugget. Now, about three miles away, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll study a story about a guy named, um, oh gosh, not Elijah, uh, Elisha. Yeah, gosh, I knew it was close. Elisha, right? And Elisha raises the dead son of a Shunammite woman, Okay about three miles away from this. And so what is the crowd's response to seeing this sun rays? Go ahead. Oh, celebration. What does it say? God has what? Visited his people. Hear me. Before this, the people of God, what we have in your Bible between Old Testament and New Testament is a 400 or so year period called the intertestamental period where the people of God believed God was silent In other words, there was no new prophets. There was no new writings. God had left his people, so it seemed. And so if you're in the crowd and you've been wondering, where is this God? And now they exclaim because they see the love, power, and compassion of the Savior, Jesus. God has visited his people. So at every level, people are being touched by this very understated moment of our Savior. God has visited his people. And people are changed. Okay? Now, um, what's the last thing he does? And, and Cosmo, you said it, so say it again. He gives the child back to the woman. Now, for me, right, upon first reading, this is a, I'm going to read really quickly through this line because what does this even mean? Like, why is this here? Obviously, he didn't keep him, right? Like, I wanted one and just walks away, right? This is not like this weird adoption scenario. He takes and raises this kid. Now, this kid's been dead for a while, so my guess is he wasn't full of energy. So the imagery that at least runs through my mind is he, he picked up and grabbed this person. Now, just let, let's also remember, for him, especially as a rabbi, as a Jew, to be touching a dead person was crazy. It was unclean, unsafe, and against the law of the Torah. And yet he raises this kid and then collects him and carries him to the mother, who my guess is just going through the whole gamut of emotion right now. Why does he do that? And hear me, why would the author Luke why would he give us this detail? And hear me, this is very important. It's because the woman is more important than the miracle. Okay? This widow was more important to Jesus than all the fanfare that could surround what just happened. Guys, people are more important 
than the work that surrounds them. And see how Jesus in the story that we've been to see, no, it's not, it's not about him. It's, it's about, and I want to love this woman well. So everything is about her. Here you go. You're more important than anything. Imagine the value given to a widow in that society at that time to know that Jesus, the one God has visited his people, has just proclaimed to the watching world, you're more important than anything I'll do. That, that, that's love. That is the trajectory and the movement of the heart and the life and the love of Jesus who walked with us. And now hear me, walks with us today in his spirit. So we gaze upon what he's done in these stories. And listen, I I don't know about you, but I hear this story, and, and listen, we went through this quick, like this is something we'd love for you is to go home, to reread with your families, to parse out more, to study more, to pray as often as you can in the midst of that study, to talk to Jesus who's raised from the dead, because here's what's so amazing about this story is that that is true for us. Like, hear me, we're both the widow and the son, Right? We're the dead son who could not raise ourselves until Jesus came and raised us himself. We're the widow who stands outside facing calamity and hardship around us, lack of provision, lack of security, fear, anxiety, etc., etc., and the Savior comes in and declares value over us because he created us. Too often I feel like we live like we're the professionals. Like we're paid to be here. Like, like we're just, well, I'm supposed to be here. Or even the crowd that's having to go to this funeral because we happen to live in Maine. We show up to church. We read our Bibles sometimes. We go to small groups. We do the Christian stuff. Why? Because we think we're paid to do it. We think we're expected to do it. We do it because we love the one who draws us together. If we got to, we put ourselves in the wrong shoes. We're the dead, we're the lost, we're the least, and we're the last. But the Savior comes in and speaks the opposite over his creation. The gospel story, Jesus looked upon creation, looked upon the apex of his creation. That's you, that's you guys, that's us. He looked upon humanity. He saw their pain, their brokenness, their striving, and what he experienced was compassion and hardship. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place where we deserve to die. You get this picture then standing at the gate that what you have is a tangible picture of the transfer of God. Where God, Jesus, walks into the gate and you can get the imagery that he raises the sun and puts himself in the casket. Because that's where you and I belong. Okay? Um, but he walks in and says, no, no come on out because I'm going to get in this. I'm going to get in this for you so that death no longer rules this world. That's the gospel, and it sends us forth now to love and to know Jesus. Not just know about him, but to know our Savior. 
empowered and, and through the intercessory work of the Spirit of God, that we would be his people, his example to the world, that then we would love the way he loves, that we would see people first, that we'd allow our hearts to feel and move towards compassion. And then we would act power of God for the sake of the world. I land with this quote from Tyler Johnson. He's the lead pastor of our church uh, across the whole state. And he says this. <clears throat> uh, when we asked him, we said, hey, why, um, why, why this series? Like, why, we just wanted your opinion. Like, why are we doing this? He said this. It's to zoom in, see the person of Jesus, his perceptions, his emotions, and his actions. To see the glory of God in a real person. We often say Jesus is God, which is true. And because it is true, we must recognize God is like Jesus. When you really see him as he is, it's impossible to not fall in love. And that's our desire. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your hope. God, everything that we could not express in words. God, you, you saw us in all of our mess. And God, here's the thing. God, you see us even now in our mess. And your heart moves to compassion. It says that you, you move into the brokenness. God, that you move close to the broken. And you act. Jesus, I want to know you more. Like as the song goes that we, we don't really sing it, but God, we want to know you more. I just don't want to know things about you. I want to know you. So would your presence be in, in and amidst us that we would get a better vision of, of who you are, who our Savior is, who our Father is. And God, we would walk. God, we would walk in who you've created us to be. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.